and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for December 28, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, the article is entitled 2023 Year in Review, Top 10 North Iowa Stories of 2023 by the Globe Gazette staff. Each December, Globe Gazette reporters and editors look back at their favorite stories of the past year. They may recall what now seem like tempests in teapots, long since calmed or foretell storms on the horizon, a beloved local figure lost, or an iconic downtown building reduced to ashes. Some are controversial, some are inspirational, some are aspirational. We hope you will find all 10 collected here to be interesting. Number one story, Fire Destroys the Kirk Apartments. On April 24, a huge blaze completely destroyed the Kirk Apartments at 206 North Federal Avenue in Mason City. All tenants were able to evacuate safely, although some pets lost their lives. The iconic downtown structure was a total loss. The fire began in the early afternoon when residents noticed smoke and alarms began sounding. Mason City Fire Department was on the scene in minutes. The fire seemed to be under control by 2.30 p.m. Looking on from the outside, the smoke dissipated and no flames were visible. By 4.30 p.m., all that had changed. Flames were visible on the north side of the building, and all of downtown quickly was darkened by smoke. Flames soon shot through the roof. By 8 p.m., floors of the historic three-story building had given way, and bricks on one side had collapsed. The brick shell of the building was all that remained, its windows and roof gone. Number 2. Algona Police Officer Slain Algona police officer Kevin Cram was killed September 13 as he tried to serve an arrest warrant to 43-year-old Kyle Rickey, leaving the normally quiet Kosuth County community of 5,300 stunned. Cram was a 33-year-old husband and father who had been an officer in Algona since 2015. The shooting prompted a blue alert and Algona residents were warned to lock their doors and shelter in place. Ricky was captured without incident just before midnight in Brown County, Minnesota, about 100 miles north of Algona. Hundreds gathered days later at the Algona Community Schools Gymnasium, Cram's flag-draped casket at center stage, as friends and colleagues remembered him as a dedicated officer and family man. Cram worked as an officer with the Nora Springs Police Department from 2013 until 2015. Number three, Mason City School Board election. A slate of four progressive candidates defeated a rival set of contenders who placed culture war issues front and center in their campaigns in the November 5 school board election. Catherine Kohler, Jennifer Dorsey Lee, Meg Marcos, and Madison Nelson were elected to the four open seats. They beat Tom Stocker, Kathleen Easley, Constance Deanda, and Ryan Shupik. 
the progressive faction linked together as KLMN, had the endorsements of the Hawkeye Area Labor Council AFL-CIO and the Mason City Education Association Union representing teachers in the district. The battle lines paralleled state and national conversations about parental involvement, social issues, curriculum, and restrictions on books and the discussion of LGBTQ issues. Number four, downtown hotel project advances. The Mason City Council on November 27 approved a downtown land sale that should clear the way for construction to begin on a 131-room hotel project. The council approved the sale to MCCCH LLC, formerly known as Gatehouse, Gatehouse Mason City LLC, for the proposed Hyatt Place Hotel. It was a light at the end of a years-long development tunnel. MCCCH LLC secured a loan from Stearns Bank backed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It also chose a Minnesota contractor for construction of the hotel. The project began as part of the River City Renaissance Project to make improvements to downtown. Many of those projects have been completed, but delays on the hotel development had long frustrated city officials. The hotel, an 800-person ballroom and convention area, will be located near the vacant Yonkers store at South Ridge Mall. Construction is expected to take approximately 18 months, and the hotel could open for business in the fall of 2025. Number 5. The 1133rd Returns to Iowa Members of Mason City-based 1133rd Transportation Company began returning to Iowa in August after a deployment of nine months that included a NATO mission to Poland. The initial wave of returnees was welcomed home at the Waterloo Airport by Mason City Mayor Bill Schickel and a cadre of military brass and political dignitaries. In December, hundreds of friends and family members gathered in Waterloo to formally welcome home approximately 160 members of the Iowa National Guard unit. The unit was deployed as part of Operation European Assure, Deter, and Reinforce. Right off the start, it was weird being back. Before I left, we had just had a baby, and he was three weeks old, said Specialist Jason Ray of Mason City. Coming back and seeing him almost 10 months old was a big change. Number 6. Banned Books Saga Mason City Schools in August announced a list of books it would pull from library shelves to comply with newly enacted state legislation meant to protect children from damaging and obscene material. Because of the huge number of texts that needed to be reviewed, the district used AI software to determine if books contained depictions of sex acts. Based on this review, 19 texts were targeted for removal from the school libraries for grades 7 through 12. Bans on three of those titles later were rescinded. The saga took another turn December 22 during a hearing before a federal judge on whether to halt enforcement of the law 
when the state for the first time revealed its position that the law applies only to classroom curriculum, not library materials. It would have been nice if the state would tell everybody that a long time ago, said an attorney representing groups opposing the law. Number 7. Pinecrest Teacher Quits Over Violence A teacher at Pinecrest Center tendered her resignation in October due to what she described as violent assaults by students on staff members. Jill Strike, 8th grade teacher, detailed how the shortage of staff is impacting teachers' ability to teach. Emotionally, we're all drained. We're exhausted. We're not teaching academics. We are putting out fires, Strike said, accusing the school board of failing its obligations. Strike said in the first eight weeks of school, she broke up two fistfights, was hit in the face, and had her hand smashed into a door. Two instances out of 20 assaults, she said, had been committed on staff members by students. Located on the campus of the Four Oaks Psychiatric Medical Facility for Children, the school serves children and teens with severe social, emotional, and behavioral needs. Number 8. Murder in Mason City On December 18, Frederick Joseph Olson, 51, was accused in the beating death of Leroy White, 63, at Olson's home at 1916 South Grover Avenue. Mason City Police Department officers conducting a welfare check found White's body at the home. Last released from prison in November 2022, Olson has a violent criminal record dating back to at least 1996, including a charge of attempted murder and charges of assaults of law officers and robberies. Number 9. Councilman Tom Toma Dies Tom Toma, a Mason City Council member, longtime journalist, volunteer, and musician, died August 24 at the age of 74. Elected to the City Council in 2017, Toma was a tireless champion of the residents of Mason City who found joy sharing in the accomplishments of North Iowans. Before joining the council, Toma worked 44 years for the Globe Gazette, holding many positions, including city editor and sports editor. Toma was a 1967 graduate of Mason City High School, 1969 graduate of North Iowa Area Community College, then Mason City Junior College, where he was instrumental in the creation of the student newspaper, The Logos and a 1971 graduate of Drake University. He was also an enthusiastic volunteer at the Surf Ballroom and was himself a talented drummer who had played with the likes of Hob Mason in famous North Iowa venues of years past, such as the Chart House. And number 10, Brit Police Chief Sues is fired. After filing a sexual harassment lawsuit against the city of Britt and Mayor Ryan Arndorfer for allegedly sending sexually harassing messages, videos, and images, Police Chief Mark Anderson was fired June 8. The lawsuit, filed May 12, claims Anderson was part of a group that included Arndorfer and former Councilman Chad Lucht, who resigned in April. The petition states all involved are homosexual, and Anderson used the group as support 
as he was going through a divorce. The lawsuit claims in late 2017 and early 2018, Lucht and Andorfer began sending Anderson inappropriate and sexually graphic messages. Anderson allegedly told them he was not comfortable with the messages and complained to city officials, but they did not stop. Anderson married his husband, Austin, in September 2020. The suit alleges Andorfer pressured Anderson to send him nude photos of the couple. The lawsuit alleges two violations of the Iowa Civil Rights Act for discrimination based on sex and sexual orientation and one violation of the Iowa Civil Rights Act for retaliation. In other local news, Trump Haley unveiled TV ads in Sprint to Caucuses. Former President Donald Trump's campaign makes a move for patriotic heartstrings in its latest ad. The campaign ad, which is titled A Christmas to Remember and is airing in Iowa, features former Trump White House spokeswoman and current Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders describing Trump's unannounced visit in Christmas 2018 to see U.S. troops in Iraq. That room absolutely erupted, Sanders says in a recording from a Trump campaign event featured in the new ad. That was the kind of patriotism President Trump brought back to our country. Trump continues to hold a consistent and commanding lead over the Republican presidential primary candidates, both nationally and in Iowa, ahead of the January 15, first-in-the-nation Iowa Republican caucuses. He is just over 50% in the rolling polling averages at both Real Clear Politics and 538, with roughly 30-point leads over the rest of the field in both. Haley highlights polls in new ad. Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley's campaign has unveiled a new campaign that began airing recently in Iowa. The new ad, titled Strong and Proud, features recent national polling that shows Haley faring better than other Republican primary candidates in a prospective general election against Democratic President Joe Biden. A recent Wall Street Journal poll showed Haley beating Biden by 17 percentage points. The Haley campaign also is airing a new campaign ad in New Hampshire, which highlights the endorsement of New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. In Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds has endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in the GOP race. And now a story from Rockford entitled, Fire Destroys Landmark Floyd County School. A hot and fast fire destroyed the landmark old school building in the Floyd County community of Rockford late Friday night. All of Floyd County's fire departments were on scene to battle the blaze, according to Charles City Fire Rescue, which was called in to assist the Rockford Fire Department at around 10 p.m. Rockford resident Roy Wilson has owned the landmark school since the early 1990s. He and his wife Lori operate Seems Right, an awning and upholstery business. The two originally purchased the building in hopes of using it as their business and home. As the couple undertook renovations, there was a roof failure. Over the years, other issues presented them, prevented them from refurbishing the building 
and it has been mainly empty over the years. Wilson said they left for Charles City on Friday. They returned at 7 p.m. and walked past the school to reach their front door with no indication anything was amiss. By 10 p.m., Wilson said Lori noticed a light coming through the window. Before she discovered the school was burning, a neighbor knocked to check on the couple. Wilson had been working to recover some ornate cabinet doors earlier in the afternoon inside the school. I was using a saw and a cutting wheel to take down some of those cabinet doors. I had a drop cord run through one of the windows there. It's been broken out a while and may have had leaves blown in too, he said. I turned everything off and we went up for supper at Charles City. Wilson thinks it's possible sparks from his cutting wheel may have smoldered under the f- until the flames broke out hours later. Over the years, there have been multiple break-ins, but not recently, Wilson said. It's probably just sparks. The structure was fully engulfed in flames when the Charles City firefighters arrived, according to the department's Facebook page. The structure suffered major damage to a large portion of the building, but thankfully no one was injured, the Post stated. Many area firefighters, sheriff's deputies, first responders, and EMS personnel responded to the fire, according to Floyd County, Iowa Emergency Management Agency. Other departments called to the scene included Floyd County Search and Rescue, AMR Ambulance, and the Green Fire Department from Butler County. They were out here working hard. They should get plenty of credit for the work they did to keep the neighbors safe and put out the fire, said Wilson. Municipal water supplies were utilized to fight the blaze, and water also was pulled from the Shell Rock River and then shuttled back to the fire scene via tanker trucks, according to the Floyd County Emergency Management Agency. The school was constructed in 1900 to replace another school that was built in 1873 that was also lost in a fire in 1899. The cause of the fire has not been determined. On Facebook, the city of Rockford thanked all the fire departments and rescue workers who responded to the call over the holiday weekend, adding, thank goodness no one was hurt. And now with more local news, we have Robin McClellan's favorite stories from 2023. As we embark on a new year full of new adventures, it's good to look back on the goings-on of the previous year. Here are the stories I found most important in 2023. My top story of the year, the Kirk Apartment Fire, was included in the Globe Gazette's overall top 10 North Iowa stories of 2023. In April, we learned that Mercy would close its residential hospice unit. Area residents and healthcare workers expressed their gratitude for the years of service and dismay at its closing. Summer weather brings us all out of our homes to gather together for fun and learning, and Mason City's songwriters do just that. The ongoing meetups give musicians a chance to fine-tune their craft together, sharing stories and songs along the way. In September, a new business opened, offering specialty groceries and nostalgic items. Four Corners Market has been a bustling store since its grand opening. 
In November, the race to fill four open seats on the Mason City Board of Education took a bit of a left turn when Megan Marcos, an eventually successful candidate, filed a harassment complaint against fellow candidate Ryan Shupik, whom she alleged was harassing her via posts on X, the social media site formerly known as Twitter. Shupik referenced Marcos in several posts, among other things asking her on a hot date to the Republican wingding at the surf. That made her so uneasy, she contacted Mason City Police. Police decided the post didn't rise to the level of harassment. Thank you, North Iowa, for follow, allowing us to tell your stories. And now, Alexander Schmidt's favorite stories from 2023. Underneath the Globe Gazette's masthead, it used to read, The Newspaper That Makes All North Iowans Neighbors. Since I began covering education, politics, and other North Iowa events for the Globe Gazette in April of this year, I have been thrilled to be part of its mission to provide award-winning local journalism here in North Iowa, where we're all neighbors. Here are my picks of the top five stories I covered in 2023. Dick's Country Inn. The story behind this? Dick Formanek had a story to tell, so he called me up and we told it. I met Formanek at his elevator in Hayfield on an overcast day in May. At age 88, he was retired from his family farm, but still operating the elevator, which he'd purchased in 1971. During a 45-minute interview in the elevator's office, Dick shared his proud and storied background as a de descendant of the area's early Czech settlers, the ups and downs of his career as a family farmer and restaurateur, and his pride in bequeathing his land and operations to the next generation. I'm proud that this article has been nominated as a finalist for the Iowa Newspaper Association's Better Newspaper Award for Best Personality Feature Story in a Multi-Day Publication. It's all the rage nowadays to be a Civil War history buff, and I can remember being hooked on the history of the conflict while attending the Civil War reenactment in Mason City's East Park in my youth. Aside from the sounds of roaring gunfire, the portrayal of President Lincoln was what my young and impressionable mind most remembers about the event. In the 2023 reenactment depicting 1863's Battle of Chickamauga in northern Georgia was organized by the Confederate Regiment of the Mason City Civil War Council and featured more than 75 hobbyists and history buffs from several states. Never missing an opportunity for role-playing, I attended the event in period attire, braving the late September heat in my woolen trousers, overcoat, and bowler hat, playing a Matthew Brady-esque role as I documented the events while anachronistically lugging around my modern camera equipment. And then if any random household shelf or trinket box in America contains a kaleidoscope, chances are it was a gift. When I passed the roadside telescope business in Manly, the roadside kaleidoscope business in Manly, 
I took it upon myself to investigate. What I found was a master kaleidoscope craftsman sprawling domain. Carl Schilling's Kaleidoscopes to You has an online catalog of more than 700 pieces, from plastic toy kaleidoscopes to handcrafted fine art kaleidoscopes, teledioscopes, which refract images and light in front of the lens, as opposed to within the instrument, and handmade marbles, jewelry, and glassware. It also fills corporate orders for kaleidoscopes sold at gift shops or as promotional giveaways and custom orders with laser and wood engraving. Schilling says he's been blessed. He considers himself just lucky to make a career of selling and making kaleidoscopes, bringing joy to people worldwide, but only in America can I make a living selling things people do not need but want. And then we belong. Pride Month is typically celebrated in June, but locals who have organized Mason City's Pride for the last five years have held the event in July to learn from bigger and more established Pride events such as those in Des Moines and Minneapolis-St. Paul. In throwing the most well-attended rendition of the LGBTQIA plus celebration yet, it's safe to say that despite some vocal pushback and disruptions from would-be detractors, the celebration of pride in Mason City is here to stay. As anti-LGBTQ hate crimes and harassment continue to rise, one of the event's organizers, the Reverend Leanne Clausen de Montes, said LGBTQ youths deserve a place where they can learn, they have the support they need, the educational health care, and mental health support, and know that there is a community that welcomes them and wants to keep them safe and let them be who they are. And then an article entitled Three Dog Night Returns to the Surf. I got pleasure of interviewing Danny Hutton, founding frontman and the, quote, last original dog, close quote, of the legendary rock outfit Three Dog Night, ahead of their August 26th show at the historic Surf Ballroom. Three Dog Night claims some of the most astonishing statistics in popular music. In the years 1969 through 1974, no other group achieved more top 10 hits, moved more records, or sold more concert tickets. In a 40-minute phone interview available on the Globe Gazette's website, the 80-year-old rocker Hutton shared details about his life and legacy, why his latest tour is never-ending, and how the spirit of a band and its songs transcends any barrier. Hutton and the band, returning to the surf for the first time since 2011, delivered a rollicking show filled with their hits Mama Told Me Not to Come, Joy to the World, Black and White, Shambhala, and One all of which have firmly imprinted themselves within the zeitgeist of American pop music and culture, receiving airplay in major motion pictures and television, along with becoming enduring staples of classic rock radio. Alexander Schmidt, who wrote these, memo these memories, is a reporter covering education, politics, and North Iowa events for the Globe Gazette. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette for December 28, 2023.
I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Messenger for December 28, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, the main article is entitled Coffee with Canines. Dayton Doggy Dude Ranch hosts peer support gatherings. For Sarah Peters, boarding pets while their owners are away and advocating for mental health go hand in hand. In fact, late last year, she decided to blend her passion for mental health and substance abuse recovery advocacy and her family's business of boarding pets at the Dayton Doggy Dude Ranch by creating the Best Friend Project. The Best Friend Project is a nonprofit peer support program that shelters pests while their humans are seeking help in a treatment facility for mental health or substance use disorders. Often, when a person enters treatment and they have no friends or family who can take in their pet, the pet ends up in an animal shelter or city pound, Peter said. And sometimes, when the person completes their treatment and is ready to go home, their pet has been adopted out or they themselves can't afford to bail the pet out of the pound. For a lot of these people, their pet is the reason they got out of bed every day, says Peters. Peters is a peer support specialist, or someone with lived experiences, who is trained to provide support to individuals who struggle with mental health or substance abuse. We want to offer peer services to our rural community And offering peer services would mean getting your peers together so that they can talk and chat, she said. Recently, she decided to expand the Doggy Dude Ranch and Best Friend Project's missions and began hosting a weekly coffee on the corner at the Dude Ranch, 24 East Skillet Avenue in Dayton. Every Wednesday from 9 to 10 a.m., Peters invites members of the community to come into the dude ranch to enjoy a cup of coffee, chat with others, and pet a few dogs. All are welcome, she wrote on the events page on Facebook. Though out of respect for the boarding guests, visitors are asked to leave their own pets at home. I love coffee on the corner because if somebody doesn't feel like chatting, if they just feel like coming in and having coffee and reading a good book, or they want to sip on some coffee and pet a dog, they don't really have to be real social. Peters has set up a few cafe-style tables and chairs in the kennel's indoor playground, along with a coffee bar where visitors can brew a cup of joe or whip up an espresso drink. She's working on putting together a small library of books visitors can browse while they're there. Not only do the visitors get to sip coffee and chat, but the dogs being boarded at the ranch get a little extra socializing and petting. As a peer support specialist, Peters advocates for mental health services and education. Mental health is part of overall wellness. It's a part of your overall well-being, she said. Going to a counselor should be no different than the doctor. In a small town, the challenges with mental health struggles can be even harder. They don't have a lot of services in our community, and I'm trying to provide it and also incorporate the dogs into it as well, she said.
Peters has started hosting a monthly peer potluck at the Dude Ranch and also provides direct peer support for anyone who wants to stop by or call. Peters established the Best Friend Project last year. Initially, she coordinated foster homes for the pets needing shelter while their owners were in treatment. But earlier this summer, she began boarding the pets at the Doggy Dude Ranch. It's been a huge success, she said. The Best Friend Project is currently housing seven animals. Three others spent some time there before being reunited with their owner. The program was approved for opioid settlement funds through the Webster County House Pets, through Webster County to house pets for Webster County residents who are seeking treatment for methamphetamines and opiates. Those funds can only be used for Webster County residents, so Peters is asking the surrounding counties to approve the same opioid settlement funding to be used for their residents. The profit from running the Doggy Dude Ranch is currently keeping the Best Friend Project afloat, she said. Looking ahead, Peters is focusing the Best Friend Project services on Webster County and the surrounding counties. She's also looking to expand the program to provide pet boarding for residents of domestic violence shelters, as well as to identify other avenues of funding. Peters is able to board both dogs and cats for the Best Friend Project. More information about the Best Friend Project can be found on its Facebook page. Also on the front page, an article entitled Ethanol is a Key Iowa Issue for GOP Presidential Contenders. Republican candidates for the presidency have fawned over farmers this caucus season as they've courted voters in Iowa, the nation's top producer of corn, eggs, and pork. The candidates often talk in platitudes about their support for Iowa agriculture and paint themselves as farmers' best friends. Former President Donald Trump said he is a champion of farmers in a campaign visit to Council Bluffs on July 7, 2023. I'm proud to be the most pro-farmer president that you've ever had in your life, former President Donald Trump told supporters during a campaign stop in Council Bluffs in July. None of the candidates has suggested that farmers be forced to implement costly measures to help the environment. To the contrary, the candidates rail against federal regulations that pertain to agriculture, especially those that seek to protect the nation's streams. I will prevent both federal and state overreach from obstructing our agricultural industry, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wrote in the Des Moines Register. The lone agriculture issue to cause serious contention among the candidates is ethanol, which Iowa also leads the nation in producing. Ohio businessman Vivek Ramswamy said he supports the ethanol industry, but when he was poised early this month to announce his forceful opposition to using eminent domain to build carbon dioxide pipelines and to even question their purpose, the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association released a scathing critique of the candidate. The association called him a hypocrite for his support of an oil pipeline and lack of support for pipelines that might benefit ethanol producers and farmers. 
ethanol has, on the whole, been a rallying point for the candidates. More than half of the state's corn is used to produce the fuel, bolstering demand for the crop and the price per bushel it fetches. And the candidates have supported its use in combustion engines as an alternative to electric vehicles, which are largely disdained by Republican voters. A Gallup poll in March found that 71% of Republicans would not consider owning an electric vehicle. But the unwavering support for ethanol among the candidates was not initially clear. DeSantis, when he was a congressman representing Florida in 2017, supported an end to the renewable fuel standard, which mandates a certain amount of ethanol be blended with gasoline each year. Trump has taken repeated shots at DeSantis because of it. If he had his way, the entire economy of Iowa would be absolutely collapsed, Trump said in July. DeSantis has reversed course on the issue and said recently he would not seek to end the biofuels mandate. The candidates have expressed support for the year-round sales of E15, a gasoline blend that is 15% ethanol. In some states, including Iowa, the gasoline that is blended with ethanol is more volatile, and the E15 that is created with it does not meet federal fuel standards in the summer that are meant to limit air pollution caused by evaporation. Why is the government telling you what months you can do it? Nikki Haley, a former ambassador to the United Nations, said during a campaign stop in Altoona. Trump scored points with the ethanol industry in 2019 when his administration decided to allow the widespread sale of E15 during summer months, but the rule change was struck down by an appeals court that said only Congress could authorize it. He also drew the ire of ethanol advocates when his administration granted waivers to fuel refiners that exempted them from renewable fuel standard requirements. Trump holds a commanding lead in Iowa, according to a recent Des Moines Register NBC NewsMediacom poll, Iowa poll. He is the top choice of 51% of likely Republican caucus goers. DeSantis and Haley are a distant second and third, with 19% and 16%. Ramswamy has the fourth most support at 5%. And finally, on the front page, an article entitled, I-35 Rollover, Fatal to Kansas City Man. From Ellsworth, a Kansas City man died in a rollover crash on Tuesday on Interstate 35 near Ellsworth when he was partially ejected from the vehicle in which he was a passenger. Joe Roger Rivera Vasquez, 42, was a passenger in the back seat of a pickup driven by Pedro Faustino Quintalilia, 29, also of Kansas City. The Iowa State Patrol said the driver lost control of the northbound pickup as it began to slide off the right side of the road. It rolled down the embankment, coming to rest on the driver's side of the vehicle. Vasquez was pronounced dead at the scene. The driver was not injured. The Iowa State Patrol reported that road conditions likely played a role in the accident. The surface of I-35 was wet at the time of the accident, the Iowa State Patrol reported. 
It may also have been icy in some spots. Three other people in the 2004 Chevrolet Avalanche were not hurt in the crash. They were listed as Jose Evelio Perez Rivera, 42, Merlin Saul Benegas Mendez, 31, and Kelvin Josu Pere Martinez, 20, all of Kansas City. The accident happened shortly before 5.30 p.m. near mile marker 133, which is near the I-35 intersection with Iowa State Highway 175 at Ellsworth. Ellsworth EMS responded to the scene to assist. On page 2, we find an article entitled Endangered Species Act Turns 50. Those who first enforced it reflect on its mixed legacy. On December 28, 1973, President Richard Nixon signed the Endangered Species Act. Nothing, he said, is more priceless and more worthy of preservation than the rich array of animal life with which our country has been blessed. The powerful new law charged the federal government with saving every endangered plant and animal in America and enjoyed nearly unanimous bipartisan support. The act was so sweeping that in retrospect, it was bound to become controversial, especially since it allowed species to be listed as endangered without consideration for the economic consequences. In that way, it pitted two American values against each other. The idea that Americans should preserve their incredible natural resources, the United States invented the National Park after all, and the notion that capitalism was king and private property inviolate. Left to navigate this minefield was a group of young biologists in Washington, the first office of endangered species. Ichthyologist Jim Williams, the office's first fish guy, was hired in 1974. He describes his cohort as a bunch of conservation-minded biologists that were all on a mission to save every last one of our chosen group of organisms come hell or high water. And by the way, to hell with the bureaucrats and politicians. His unconventional attitude and methods soon became apparent with the listing of the snail darter, a little fish now so notorious it has become synonymous with government overreach. At the time, it was only known to exist in the Little Tennessee River, which the Tennessee Valley Authority was planning to dam. I started talking about listing it, and boy, oh boy, did the crap hit the fan, Williams said. His boss told him the listing was so controversial, it might spell the end of the Endangered Species Act. It didn't, but the law would never again enjoy the support of its earliest days. Whether the government should try to save all species from extinction, or if not, where to draw the line, became a point of conflict that has never been fully resolved. Herpetologist Ken Dodd was recruited to the office in 1976. There was not a whole lot of conservation theory at the time to draw on, he said, so we were really at the cutting edge of determining what is necessary for conservation. Like Williams, Dodd regularly butted heads with administrators. He also followed the science where it led, without thought for whom it might inconvenience. But the thing that actually got him fired in 1979 
was not a listing, but a letter. A man named Dominique Deramo owned a Washington restaurant that was serving rattlesnake meat, he said came from Pennsylvania. That would have violated a law called the Lacey Act. So I wrote to the restaurant and said, hey, Dominique, I think you need to get a better source, Dodd said. It turned out Interior Secretary Cecil Andrus was a patron. When he learned what Dodd had done, he fired me. Dodd obtained an attorney. Meanwhile, according to Williams, we all went down to a t-shirt shop, got shirts that said, Save Ken Dodd and Rattlesnakes. The ensuing publicity made an impact. Soon, Dodd was back at work. Mambologist Ron Nowak joined the office in 1973. The animals he was responsible for were often furry and charismatic, but he still had problems with his listings. In the 1980s, the gray wolf was coming back in Minnesota from just a tiny remnant of a couple hundred animals to maybe several hundred or a thousand, thanks to the Endangered Species Act. Wildlife officials wanted to open a hunting season. That would require a regulation showing it would benefit the wolves and was the only way to control their population. They told me you have to write the regulation, Noack said, and I said it would be illegal. Someone else wrote the regulation. Conservation groups sued, calling Nowak as a witness. The conservation groups won. On page three, we find an article entitled Photographer Cecil Williams' Vision Gives South Carolina Its Only Civil Rights Museum. Much of how South Carolina has seen its civil rights history has been through the lens of photographer Cecil Williams, from sit-ins to prayer protests to portraits of African-Americans integrating universities and rising to federal judges, Williams has snapped it. After years of work, Williams' millions of photographs are being digitized and categorized, and his chief dream of a civil rights museum marking how black Africans fought segregation and discrimination in the state is about to move out of his old house and into a much bigger and much more prominent building in Orangeburg. Images can be very powerful storytelling, said Williams, who turned 85 last month, and the struggle to get the rights we were due under the U.S. Constitution is a very powerful story. While Williams' story and those in his images will be remembered, preservationists and historians worry plenty of African-American history is being lost as those who lived during the civil rights era die and their letters, photographs, and other mementos of the struggle are tossed out. We talk about superheroes like Superman or the Black Panther, but I wish young people would realize there are superheroes in their neighborhood who fought injustice every day, Williams said. Williams got his first camera when he was nine. A few years later, he took one picture of civil rights attorney and later Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall Marshall, getting off a train to work on a segregation case. Just one frame, because it was dark and flashbulbs were a dollar each. The photo got a lot of attention. Soon Jet Magazine had Williams taking pictures. He kept going for decades, capturing images of the Charleston hospital workers' strike 
U.S. Senator Strom Thurmond's last campaign and the Confederate flag being removed from atop the Statehouse Dome. In 2019, Williams, his wife, and a friend realized there was no museum focused on civil rights in South Carolina, unlike every other southern state. So Williams converted his old house and darkroom into a residential neighborhood in Orangeburg, into the civil, into the Cecil Williams South Carolina Civil Rights Museum. He created the exhibitions and partitioned off the rooms himself. It's had 25,000 visitors with little marketing. His photographs are everywhere, but that's not all. There is a bowling pin and shotgun shells from the all-star bowling lanes where demonstrations to desegregate in 1968 ended with police firing on protesters, killing three of them in what became known as the Orangeburg Massacre. Williams' latest efforts are a long-shot attempt to get the U.S. Supreme Court to rename the Brown case the Briggs case in its official records. The Briggs cases landed on the Supreme Court's docket in 1951. Brown was added a year later. The court has said the name appeared when a clerk consolidated five cases against segregation, including the Brown and Briggs lawsuits. Williams said he thinks it was intentional to obscure that South Carolina generated the case that killed segregation. We have an article entitled, Comedian Tom Smothers, one half of the Smothers Brothers, dies at 86. Tom Smothers, half of the Smothers Brothers and the co-host of one of the most socially conscious and ground-breaking television shows in the history of the medium, has died at 86. The National Comedy Center, on behalf of his family, said in a statement Wednesday that Smothers died Tuesday at home in Santa Rosa, California, following a cancer battle. I'm just devastated, his brother and the duo's other half, Dick Smothers, told the Associated Press in an interview Wednesday. Every breath I've taken, my brother's been around. When the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour debuted on CBS in the fall of 1967, it was an immediate hit to the surprise of many who had assumed the network's expectations were so low it positioned their show opposite the top-rated Bonanza. But the Smothers Brothers would prove a turning point in television history with its sharp eye for pop culture trends and young rock stars such as The Who and Buffalo Springfield with its daring sketches, ridiculing establishment, railing against the Vietnam War, and portraying members of the era's hippie counterculture as gentle, fun-loving spirits, found an immediate audience with young baby boomers. We were moderate. We were never out, out there, Dick's mother said, but we were the first people through that door. It just sort of crept in as the 60s crept in. We were part of that generation. The show reached number 16 in the ratings in its first season. It also drew the ire of network censors. After years of battling with the brothers over the show's creative content, the network abruptly canceled the program in 1970, accusing the siblings of failing to submit an episode in time for the censors to review. 
nearly 40 years later, when Smothers was awarded an honorary Emmy for his work on the show, he jokingly thanked the writers he said had gotten him fired. He also showed that the years had not dulled his outspokenness. It's hard for me to stay silent when I keep hearing that peace is uh, only attainable through war. Smith, Smothers said at the 2008 Emmy Awards, as his brother sat in the audience beaming. He dedicated his award to those who feel compelled to speak out and are not afraid to speak to power and won't shut up. During the three years the show was on television, the brothers constantly battled with CBS censors and occasionally outraged viewers as well, particularly when Smothers joked that Easter is when Jesus comes out of his tomb and if he sees his shadow, he goes back in and we get six more weeks of winter. At Christmas, when other hosts were sending best wishes to soldiers fighting overseas, Smothers offered to his draft dodgers who had moved to Canada. In still another episode, the brothers returned blacklisted folk singer Pete Seeger to television for the first time in years. He performed his song Waist Deep in the Big Muddy, widely viewed as ridiculing President Lyndon Johnson. When CBS refused to air the segment, the brothers brought Seeger back for another episode, and he sang it again. This time it made the air. After the show was canceled, the brothers sued CBS for $31 million and were awarded $775,000. Their battles with the network were chronicled in the 2002 documentary, Smothered, The Censorship Struggles of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Tom Smothers was not only an extraordinary comic comedic talent, who together with his brother Dick became the most enduring comedy duo in history, entertaining the world for over six decades but was a true champion for freedom of speech. National Comedy Center Executive Director Journey Gunderson said in a statement. Thomas Bolin Smothers III was born February 2, 1937, on Governor's Island, New York, where his father, an Army major, was stationed. His brother was born two years later. In 1940, their father was transferred to the Philippines, and his wife, Two sons and their sister, Sherry, accompanied him. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the family was sent home, and Major Smothers remained. He was captured by the Japanese during the war and died in captivity. The family eventually moved to the Los Angeles suburb of Redondo Beach, where Smothers helped his mother take care of his brother and sister while she worked. Tommy was the greatest older brother. He took care of me, Dick Smothers said. His maturity was amazing. Sometimes you lose part of your childhood. The brothers had seemed unlikely to make television history. They had spent several years on the nightclub and college circuits and doing TV guest appearances, honing an offbeat comedy routine that mixed folk music with a healthy dose of sibling rivalry. They would come on stage, Tom with a guitar in hand and Dick toting an upright bass. They would quickly break into a traditional folk song, perhaps John Henry or Pretoria. After playing several bars, Tom, positioned as the dumb one, despite being older, would mess up, then quickly claim he had meant to do that. 
as Dick, the serious, short-tempered one, berated him for failing to acknowledge his error, he would scream in exaggeration, Mom always liked you best. It was the childlike enthusiasm through ignorance and me, the teacher, correcting him. Sometimes I'd correct him even if I was wrong, Dick's mother said. I was the perfect straight man for my brother. I was the only straight man for my brother. <clears throat> and now some news briefs. The U.S. on Wednesday announced that what officials say could be the final package of military aid to Ukraine unless Congress approves supplemental funding legislation that is stalled on Capitol Hill. The weapons, worth up to $250 million, include an array of air munitions and other missiles, artillery, anti-armor systems, ammunition, demolition, and medical equipment and parts. The aid, provided through the Presidential Drawdown Authority, will be pulled from Pentagon stockpiles. In a statement, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Garen Garn, a Pentagon spokesman, said there is no more funding to replace the weapons taken from department stocks. And the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which provides long-term funding for future weapons contracts, is also out of money. President Joe Biden is urging Congress to pass a $110 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and other national security needs. It includes $61.4 billion for Ukraine, with about half to replenish Pentagon stocks. It also includes about $14 billion for Israel as it fights Hamas and $14 billion for U.S. border security. Other funds would go for security needs in the Asia-Pacific 